Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today by myself. So I have brought in um, a former student and friend of the podcast, Claire Katakousinos. Hi Claire. Hi, how are you going? Good. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Thank you for coming in. And so the reason we've got Claire is because Claire um, graduated with a Master Cree writing in yes. 2014. So she's one of our most illustrious former students. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and she is a writer of historical fiction yep. and a writer of contemporary YA fiction. So we thought that we'd bring her in today in order to talk about both her writing career and also just managing being a young writer because Claire is very useful and, <laughs> and she has a lot of and she has a lot of helpful advice yes. to give to other young writers out there and I know that many of you listening would be interested in her insights. She actually spoke to my um, my pace unit, which is our internships unit, and she was so good and so useful that I Thank thought you. we have to bring you in <laughs> and share these insights into with with the wider audience. So Claire, my first question for you is when did you decide to pursue a career in writing and, and why? What made you interested? Okay, so when I was little, mum would always take us to the library, would go reading to the public library and then I used to write letters to a friend when I was about I think maybe eight or nine years old in year three or year four mm. because I swapped schools. So I was corresponding a lot with just writing letters, and this is before emailing. Yeah, it was like paper. <laughs> yeah, wow. this is paper writing. So I used to write letters um, with a friend who did it for about, I think, maybe two to three years when yeah. I was younger. And then I got really obsessed with the Harry Potter series when I was 14, <laughs> as you do at, like, yeah. at that age of your life. But, um, yeah, I started writing Harry Potter fan fiction, so the surprising thing about that is that I used to be a Drake and, and Hermione fan. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I know, yeah. So I used <laughs> to write um, Drake and Hermione fan fiction with another of another friend as well that used to go to the same school as me. Um, and because I thought to myself, J.K. Rowling has done just such an amazing job with the story that she's created with the Harry Potter world, and I mm. thought, why can't I do that? Yeah. So I started writing Harry Potter fan fiction on the side. There is some stuff still on the internet about it. Yeah. But I won't ever reveal <laughs> my name um, with that. But a lot, it was a lot of fun. But it was just a great avenue to get me started with, like, just writing, prose fiction writing. Um, and then when I was 17, I, I was in year 11, and I then wanted to then start just, you know, other types of writing with short stories. And I did a... Um, a short story for a task for school and my teacher gave it back to me and just written down in a green pen was you're a born writer Claire and I thought oh that is so sweet wow that yeah. somebody who's not a family member or a friend like it's a teacher who actually saw my potential if, if I had any potential yeah. um and the funny thing was that she even went up to my sister because she was my sister's homeroom teacher and she even said to her oh your sister's short story was amazing and I thought well, that's nice of her to go out of, out of her way to even talk to my sister about it, yeah. who she was a home um, homeroom teacher for. So from there, um, she then asked me if I wanted to participate um, writing my first novella in a Somerset competition. Oh, wow. So at the age of 17, yeah. I wrote my first, um, I think it was a 25, 20 to 25,000 word novella and knew I wasn't going to win the competition, but I just thought it's just a great way for me just to get started with completing a mm. manuscript and you know, a big story. Such an important lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. So very important lesson. And then the editing stage as well. So that was another. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote actually 30,000 words, but I had to cut down by 5,000 because of the submission. Mm. But um, yeah, just a great task just to set your mind to something with the mental toughness of just sitting down and just yeah. writing your story and finishing it. And then we've just talking to my teacher. She even said to me, Claire, 
the great advice that she gave me was by the age of 25, if you go and educate yourself at uni and you learn all there is to know about creative writing, by the age of 25, you will know everything there is to know. Mm. So that great advice I took on board when I was 17. Mm. So that's why I structured my writing around that goal. And that's Mm. why I went to, I picked Macquarie because it was the best one that had everything that I wanted to do. It's got the beautiful lake, you know, the natural environment. (laughs) But also just I could do creative writing. I could do my ancient history major because I'm a big fan of ancient history, as you can tell, because I write um, ancient historical fictions in ancient Greece. And, yeah, so that's how that started. But the funny thing was if I hadn't met that teacher, I wouldn't have kind of pursued it. Mm. So when I was 17, well, in year 10 really, um, you pick your units that you want to do, your subjects that you want to do in year 11, year 12. Mm. And I had to go in and we all had interviews with teachers about the subjects that we had um, chosen. My mum came in with me and I had a chat with one of the teachers and they just questioned my academic ability or my English ability to do extension English 1, which I thought was a bit of a... It's a bit of an insult as well yeah, to yourself because yeah. it kind of like hits your your confidence of, wow, I kind of want to pursue doing this in year 11, year 12, but the teachers are saying they just they just questioned my ability. Yeah, that's so, yeah. yeah, so I didn't I didn't do extension English 1, even though in year 10 I was doing after-school courses to get myself ready to do it. Um, but then if I hadn't done that, all the extension English girls were in a different teacher's class. They were in the top advanced English class. But if I hadn't done extension English, I wouldn't have met my teacher who mm. gave me that advice. Yeah, so it ended how, up well. Yeah, so in a weird way, in hindsight, you think to yourself, wow, that's why it's turned out. Mm. And I'm actually grateful I didn't do that. Mm. But then when you hear girls doing extension English too, you're like, oh, they're writing their <laughs> own projects. I would have loved to have done that. But, but you were writing your own projects. Yeah, so I was yeah. doing it, but it, I wasn't being assessed on it. That was the only difference. But mm. it was just, yeah, just where it was meant to be. Yeah, that's right. And so then you came to uni? Yep, came to uni. I started my um, Bachelor of Arts degree in Ancient History and Creative Writing. Mm -hmm. Met wonderful teachers. And then in my first year, I started, you know, you start writing your short stories to start working out what what kind of writer you are, how you want to brand yourself. Mm. Um, And then it wasn't until about my second year after I'd written a couple of short stories that I started getting the nitty-gritty that I wanted to start writing um, historical fiction. Mm. I was also trying to somehow figure out how to write about my Greek-Australian background. Mm-hmm. Didn't do that until my master's degree when I did a poetry unit with myself, Raymond, and mm-hmm. I started writing about, yeah, feeling displaced in the Greek-Australian community and how I wanted to come across that way with my own writing, and poetry gave me that avenue to do that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, my graduate my graduate degree, yeah, with my master's, it just it kind of, like, reinforced everything I was trying to write during my Bachelor of Arts degree. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back to a few of the things that you mentioned. So for, you mentioned writing historical fiction. Yeah. Um, so I wanted, wondered if you could talk about that and yep. what drew you to historical fiction, especially historical fiction about ancient Greece, because I believe that is yeah you're publishing a book. Yep, I'm <laughs> publishing a book um, with my publisher Zuzil in the US. Um, it's a book set in ancient Greece, and I've, I'm, I'm a big fan of ancient Greece since I was a little girl. I used to sit and watch, you know, Hercules, yeah. Xena, the warrior princess with my papu, which in Greek means grandfather. And my dad also introduced me to, you know, all the great historical epics, you know, the yeah. 1950s, Cleopatra, Ben-Hur, mm. Jason the Argonauts, and even like the Arabian Nights with like, you know, Sinbad, all those great yeah, historical epics. So I was a big, big fan of that. I was introduced to, introduced to it as a child because of my Greek heritage. So mm. 
dad was a big fan and a big advocate about just spreading, you know, the love of Greek culture. So that's where the ancient history side of it came from. Mm. So I just grew up around, you know, being surrounded by just, you know, ancient Greek statues and the marbles and the columns and everything. So I've just got really just, you know, thrown into it as a kid. And then I kind of wanted to pursue just the magical part of, you know, being thrown back into the ancient world and how I can educate people, my my passion for ancient Greece in Mm. a way in fiction. So just to educate kids about, you know, ethical understanding, having empathy for other people and just to walk in somebody else's footsteps. Yeah. And also the, the great things about, you know, the costumes that they wore mm-hmm. and the hair and just, yeah, the whole theatrics of it I just love. So what sort of research do you do? I mean, you mentioned studying ancient history at yep. uni. Um, so do you, when you set out to write a story or a book set in ancient Greece, do you go back and yep. reread the sources? And So, yeah, I reread a lot of the sources. Um, a lot of the times I get my ideas from my ancient history major that I did my Bachelor of Arts degree and it's just I pinpoint things that I really want to write about so the one thing that I really love to advocate for is giving voices to lower social classes that didn't have a voice back in their days yeah because history's written you know from big the big guys yeah so you've got and usually kids, guys and usually guys yeah, yeah, too yeah, yeah. Yeah. so <laughs> that's why I wanted to start I wanted to give a voice to those social classes that didn't have a voice so with um, my first short story Halike that I published um when I finished uni, part of the Quarry A journal, and then I also got it published as a hard copy in the MC Squared magazine through the cultural um, cultural studies unit as well. Um, it was from the point of view of a young girl who they considered Halike. They discovered this archaeological site, and they considered it to be like the lost Atlantis, mm. and also to be. Um, Similar to the Pompeii and Herculaneum, that it's this, you know, great lost city. It's got so much history and stories to tell. So I thought, what if I write from the perspective of a person who, you know, there's a, inevitably they're going to die, but mm. it's kind of like what kind of story you could tell and what was the drama that was going on, what was the signs and the symptoms mm. that there was going to be an earthquake and then a tsunami that destroyed the whole city. Mm. And then another short story that I wrote um, was Taris's Parthenians. And that is literally just, you know, the Spartans 300. Have you seen that? Yeah, video? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's quite funny. <laughs> My brothers walk around, they go, this is Sparta, you know, <laughs> young Greek boys do. It's quite yeah. funny. But um, what I loved about learning about the Spartans, even when I was in year 12 learning about ancient history, was there was this group of young men who were ostracized because they were born from slave women, but their fathers were Spartans, but they were like half caste. So I thought to myself, was there an act of rebellion on their part to, mm. you know, take back their ownership, that their rights, that they should have some property because the Spartans were very different people. So that's where that short story came from, that inspiration. And these actual men were real figures in history and they actually rebelled against the Spartans and then separated themselves. And I think they colonised, I think it was a part of Italy, mm. and they set up a little um, a little town there. So that's what I wrote about in that short story. And I also thought... I like writing about a little bit of romance. Got to throw a little bit of romance in. Yeah. So I thought I might write a story about a young girl who is a Spartan. She's supposed to be marrying, you know, a full-blooded Spartan man, but she's fallen in love with this guy who's half Spartan, half half a slave. So mm. that's where that story came from. So you're using real-life kind of discoveries yeah. and incidents. Yeah. yeah, and then creating a little fictional part about and what, like, the, the, human, the humanity side of it and the emotions behind Yeah. A story, yeah. So just creating a story with those historical facts. So that's where my research comes from. And then I also wrote a, a story about, I think it's called 
Golden Drachmans. Um, that was another short story published with the Cory A. Journal, which is fantastic just to get some historical fiction out there because it's such a hard, such a hard thing to publish mm. historical fiction. But um, with that story, it talks about you know the ancient ancient green coins and how they actually were manufactured back in the day. So I did some study when I was doing my bachelor arts degree, and I thought, what if I could write a story about how ancient green coins were made and who actually made them? Yeah. So I created a story about a young girl who was originally from a different town, but she was a slave, and she's disguised herself as a boy so she could work to make herself a living. Right. Meanwhile, yeah. she's in love with her. <laughs> Another little love story. She's in love with um, her master's son, who's right. a painter, and that's where that story came from. And I also wanted to depict, because a lot of stories are written about the Athenians and the Spartans, but I thought about what about the other ancient Greek islands or the other yeah. other islands in general? So. My family's from, I've got three grandparents that are from the island of Lesbos mm. and one's from Lydnos. So there's also the other great um, Greek islands. So you've got Pharsos, which one of my stories is from. you got um, Kythera, Zarkinthos. So I wanted to start giving voices to other people from different, um, different areas of the ancient Greek world to give them just a voice that they don't have because you mostly just hear about the ancient Spartans and the ancient Athenians. Yeah, that's right. So that's why I wanted to, you know, yeah, start giving them a voice as well. Branch out. It sounds yeah. like, too, that your Greek heritage has fed into a lot of your writing career. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. So with um, with that, um, I started writing poetry when I was doing my Master's of, Art, of Arts degree um, with myself, Raymond. So I was trying to write, which I'm still writing now, it was a, a novella about Greek-Australian identity mm-hmm. and how you feel displaced in the Greek-Australian cultural community. So you've got cultural displacement. So the one thing I loved growing up was reading Melina Maketa's book, Looking for Ella Brandy, which yep. you guys did a podcast on, which yep. I thought was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was fantastic. So I loved, loved listening to it. There was, um, yeah, it was just talking about accepting your difference and yeah. the other. So when at school and even at work, you there's a sense of difference that you feel. So I was trying to work out where I fit in the Greek-Australian community. And um, I was reading a book I started doing research to understand, like, what I was trying to say about my identity, where I've come from, where do I fit, mm. where do I belong? And I, the kind of thing that started from that was during my HSC. We were the first year who did belonging mm. with our English. My yep. sister did journeys, and now they're doing discoveries. I was the generation that did journeys. You did yeah. journeys, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my sister was the last year that did journeys, and we were the first year that did, did belonging. belonging. Yep. But it made me question a lot about my upbringing and the fact that you can sometimes feel just displaced in your own community. So... For example, um, Greeks are always, they're born Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. So when we go to church, for Easter especially, um, or for weddings, they speak in Greek or ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. And half the time, my parents also don't understand it, even though they speak fluent Greek. But even not knowing ancient Greek, but you sit there and you just kind of feel like you don't belong because you're not understanding what they're saying. Mm. So even though I went to a Catholic school, it was great to hear the liturgy and the mass in English. But when you're supposed to be going to um, a place every year, kind of like doing your penance, mm. you can't understand them. So you kind of feel, am I Greek? Yeah. That's like, yeah. So am I Greek? What am I? And then even with my name, my first name's not Greek and it's not Christian. Mm. It's quite funny because um, I've been, I was named after my grandmother, Claire, who passed away, I think it's, how long has it been? Three years ago now? But um, I was named after her and her name was Claire and I thought, God, she would have had a lot of problems being raised on the Greek island of Lesbos with a, a with first the, name that's not even Greek. And I get judged even now for not having a first Greek name. Oh, wow. So, yeah. 
So you deal with that um, that displacement and the judgment as well. So when my parents would introduce me and my brothers and sisters to just, you know, different different yeah. family members or different like people that you meet, different Greek people, they go, this is Maria, my daughter Claire, John and William. So my, my, my brothers and sisters have got full on, they've got, you know, traditional Greek, Greek, name. Greek names, but I've got a name that's not Greek and not Christian. So people would always question my parents and say, oh, her name's not Greek. Why did you name her that? And mum would have to say, oh, it's actually, she was named after her grandmother. Yeah. And it's like, well, why was her grandmother named that? Yeah. Because it's just a constant, people just constantly question yeah. your identity and who you are. So, your place, yeah. Yeah, and your place in the world. So I thought, okay, there's that aspect of it. So I wrote a poem called Name Day. The fact, in Greek tradition, people have name days. Yep. I don't have a name day. I make jokes about it with my mum and dad and my brothers and sister. But with name days, you get, that's the Greek cultural part. Yeah. They get you can get presents or people pull your ear for good luck on your name. Oh, day. really? Is that it? Yeah, that's yeah a I have custom. a name day too. That's see, you even got a name yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, because I'm my family background is Italian, and yeah. my, my my name day is the twenty sixth of December. See, at least you yeah. got a name day. But no day. one's ever pulled my ear. Oh no, but yeah, they should do that. It's like for good luck, they pull your ear. Oh, I want so, them to pull my ear. Yeah, so I've always wanted that. I've never never yeah. experienced that. But you kind of feel a little bit like you don't belong, or you feel a little bit displaced because your brothers and sisters. They've got that, you know, cultural tradition mm. there, but it's like you've never felt that, so why don't I have that? Mm. Um, but my name actually, there's a funny thing, my name actually has come from my grandmother, and it's because my her dad, my great-grandfather, which is funny to say that, yeah. Yeah, my great-grandfather, um, he left to go to America, and he did, um, you know, they worked there yeah. as migrants and stuff, and then when he came back, he actually fell in love with the name Gladys and Claire. <laughs> And I was lucky I was called Gladys. Yeah, yeah. I know, because um, in Greek, Gladys is Galatia, which is kind of like full on if yeah, you hear is, it. But my Greek on. name yeah. is Kleri or Kleri. Right. So that's why I wrote a poem about that, because I was trying to work out how I can write what I'm feeling in prose fiction, but it just wasn't working. Whereas poetry, I was able to just, you know, get the rhythm, the, use poetic words to just get across that feeling yeah. of not belonging, but belonging. Well, that's and, such an interesting story. Yeah, yeah. so... That's where that side of my writings come from. So you've got my um, love for ancient history and mm. the love of the Greek culture, but then you've also got the other part, whereas I'm just trying to work out my identity, the, you know, the quest for self, as mm. the journey that you're on in life, as people say. But um, that's why with my novel that I'm currently proofreading mm. to try and get it published is about feeling the cultural dichotomy mm. so that you're displaced. So it's trying to work out... I can alternate from being Greek and Australian in one day. I can have, you know, a shepherd's meat pie and then I can then ha- go home and have, you know, a traditional, traditional meal of like, you know, stuffed tomatoes mm. and for you for pasta because yeah. my partner's Italian. So it's just, yeah, just alternating from the different background that you're coming from. So I wrote another poem about that. It's called Metaxi, which in Greek means an in-betweener. Mm. So just trying to work out, yeah, just your place in the world. And the book um, that I've written that I'm trying to get published as a manuscript is about two different characters. One's from the Greek-Australian community, like full-on Greek. Like he's from – he's the son of a Greek Orthodox priest. So wow. he's yeah. full thrown into yeah. um, questioning his Greek identity, where he belongs to fit in the Australian community. And then you've got the girl who's kind of like me. Uh, she's Greek-Australian. So the other um, aspect in my – stories that I like to explore is feeling linguistically alienated. Mm. I can't speak fluent Greek. Mm. I understand it. I've been brought up with it. So I understand words. I understand words here and there. 
um, and even talking to your grandparents is a bit of a language barrier as well. Yeah. And common migrant. Yeah, yeah, common migrant thing, yeah. which I know you guys talked about with Jimmy yeah. and Michelle with looking for Ali Brandy. I'm pretty sure it was yeah. in the podcast. I was like, yes. I'm like, yes, yeah. this is what I'm talking about. This is what I want to write about. Mm. So um, it's this character who feels linguistically alienated from her grandparents as well and just trying to work out, do you learn Greek, the judgment that you feel from the older generation as well? But it's like this is the norm mm. of um, of Australia. So... Like, even when I get married to my partner or, you know, I've got a Macedonian cousins and stuff, like, will we, will we be speaking that language with our children? Like, you, you keep your traditions and stuff. It's also, I was trying to explore the language aspect of it. That's a good, that's really interesting because language yeah. becomes a kind of way of nutting these out because, yeah, yeah like I said, it's so common, that story, you know, my family too, your parents speak to you and then you just respond in English. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. And that's the... Yeah, the initial mm. thing that you do. And the thing is, is that I never was able to speak to my grandparents in English back because you would always speak back in English to them. So mm. you never, you don't have the mouth or the stoma in Greek that they say that you haven't, not that you've articulated, but you haven't, um, you haven't moulded out the tongue for yeah. speaking fluent, fluent Greek. Yeah, the the, the um, grammar is what always yes. gets me. Like I can, I like I'm really good with words, but yeah. just not stringing them together as a sentence. Yeah, and then yeah. speaking in a conversation, a fluent conversation. Yeah. So then I also studied as well on the sideline for my own research for my book and also for myself. I did um, modern Greek studies oh, wow. at Sydney University. I, I did about I did a beginners course and another course. But the thing is, I did Greek school when I was in year one and year two when I was at that age, and then. I tried to do it again in year 10 when I came back from Greece with my parents and my brothers. It was the first time I was I went to Greece when I was 14. But you kind of feel that shock of displacement when you go there because you've mm. been brought up and you think, yeah, my family, this and that, this is normal. But when you go to Greece and you get thrown into that community where it's like full on, you're like, why can't I speak it? Mm. Why am I a little bit different from the kids? But yet I've been brought up this way in Australia. So did you feel very Australian when you were in Yeah, this? very yeah. Australian. <laughs> yeah. But then when you're here, you feel like yeah. you're Greek. But people, mm. yeah, it's just it's trying to understand that identity crisis, if you want to call it, Yeah, and working out where you belong. So that's where my poetry and my novel that I'm writing, my manuscript comes from, is this character trying to work out where she fits in. So you've got your Aussie side, you've got your Greek side. Yeah. And then I've also, my brother's got Lebanese friends and Macedonian friends, and it's like we're all experiencing that same problem. So with my, my writing, I'm trying to write about the emerging types of Australians. Yeah. Well, now. I think that's really important because Australian, especially children's literature, has yeah. been very heavily, very heavily monocultural. Yeah. We haven't still, even though, you know, looking for the branding was 25 years last year. Yeah. So, you know, even now we still haven't quite. Yeah, worked out. Incorporated those voices. Mm. So that's why I'm trying to, yeah, fudge that through and get that barrier out there. But um, <laughs> I read a book called um, Hate is Such a Strong Word by a Lebanese writer and a lot of the stuff that I was trying to write about, she's written perfectly yeah. with the Lebanese-Australian community. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's important. I think it's really important to get and I'm trying to diverse voices yeah, out there. and I'm trying to find more of that fiction out there, the novels out there that's been published by mm. Australian publishers. So... Yeah. How would you sort of describe, I mean, this is kind of veering off, but um, how would you kind of describe the Australian kind of children's literature publishing market? I mean, I'm aware of some kind of trends in um, children's lit publishing, but do you think that there's a big demand for those sorts of stories yes. at, the, at the moment? There is a big demand. So um, with contemporary Australian fiction, with YA, 
they're trying to get voices published. It's mm. just about getting through that slush pile, yeah. which is the main problem. And the advice that I was going to give to writers is that you need to start networking with people from the industry. No. So attending events and getting to know the publishers and the editors and not being too scared to do that because I know writers are all introverts, but <laughs> you're trying to make a statement and you're trying to – you want your book to get in, to be into the good hands of people that you know that are trying to – yeah, so working in um, book publishing at Penguin Random House, I was able to get that experience from sitting in acquisitions meetings that they're thirsty for it, mm. they're waiting for it, they're just – yeah, it's just getting through that process and getting your book into their hands. So after uni you went to and worked in publishing? Yes. Yeah, so how did you find that experience? Was that useful for you as a writer? Very, very useful. So um, I learned a lot about the book publishing world. Just um, I worked in the sales department as a sales administrator for the children's department and it was fantastic. A big eye-opener just into the book publishing industry, attending events, um, publicity and marketing, the campaigns that you need to do as a writer for yourself and that your publisher will do for you as well. But just understanding how a book, the different developments of a book and the different stages that it goes through with it being acquired by the publishers and editors. And a lot of it to do is um, with either a literary agent, which is another hard thing to get, um, for the slush pile or through networking and just getting contacts in the book publishing world. So I learned that way about how you can get your foot in the door. Then there's also the sales department and they need to sell the book for the company to, you know, still live on and yeah. they need to pay their work, like, they yeah. like their colleagues and this their workers. Business, yeah. It's a business. So they need to be able to sell the book and that's the difference between like a bestseller and a book that might become an educational book mm. on the side. So but the company needs those big bestsellers. Yeah, to keep afloat. Yeah, so I also understood more about the sales point of view as well, which is a really biggie yeah. in the book publishing world. I know in America that literary agents are kind of how you get yes. put in the door. Is right. that so much the case in Australia? Um, no, it's not. Mm. So... I tried. Yeah. <laughs> Another story here. Yeah. I tried getting a literary agent in America. Mm -hmm. That was very tough. So I wrote um, a historical fiction, young adult novel, mm -hmm. um, based on the island of Lesbos, mm -hmm. obviously where my parents are from, yeah. family. Um, it's called Arisvi, and it's just about um, two different dual focalization from a boy and girl's point of view. Again, a little love story in there, as I do. But um, I've been trying to get this book published for a long time, let's say about five years. And I started, once I can finish the book, edited it down and educated myself with the editing experience because it's a whole other yeah. ball game that every writer should know how to do is, is a structural edit, a copy edit, and then proofreading. Mm -hmm. But um, what I did is I tried to get it yeah, published in, um, in America and I went and saw, I booked an, an appointment for a consultation with um, Sophie Hamley at the Faber Academy and she just gave me advice and said, she said, my writing is good. I'm a beautiful writer. She goes, but is there a marketplace for historical fiction in Australia? And she also said that the American market is bigger because mm -hmm. there's about around roughly 24 million Australians, but there's 240 million mm -hmm. Americans. So there's a big market out there. And she goes, to get your foot in the door, you need to start emailing literary agent. This is the process. Go to this website. So I took that on board and she also said something else to me that the only thing Australian about this book is you. So why would you limit yourself to only publish it in Australia? You yeah. need to be looking in the American market or the UK. So I thought that's that's good advice. Yeah. So I took that on board. Um started I've sent over 
a hundred emails to literary agents and you know you got to do your research so there's a literary um a literary agent website that you can go to and you can see um which agent publishes which genre mm. so i had to go onto this website i can't remember what it's called now to you know give you guys advice but um you we can, can put that in the show yeah, notes later you can look yeah. it up yeah but um there's a website and you research you click onto every single literary agent and their company and you see to the different literary agents what they publish so I was looking for historical fiction but also young adult fiction so I found a couple of people here and there and I started emailing my book got so that's the first query you got to send your query so you got to make sure you adhere to their guidelines which is a really big deal because if you haven't written it properly they they won't bother reading it because they yeah. receive thousands of yeah emails a day so don't give them a reason to call you no don't yeah. don't give them a reason so you need to make sure you read their guidelines so that's what I did I had three literary agents um, request to read the full manuscript but then the other poor thing about book publishing is that it's very very subjective mm. and it's a lot to do with luck as well mm. luck's a big deal as well but um I had a literary agent comment that my book was more for women's fiction, more commercial women's fiction. So I took, but that was the end of that conversation. I had another person who didn't like the fact that it was written with dual focalization, that there was a boy and girl point of view. Mm-hmm. I'm like, come on, like that's the kind of linchpin of your know, it's like, Come on, don't you want you know those two those two voices and how they end up the way they end up? I'm like, his story and her story. So I just, oh, it's very very subjective. And the third person. I think she gave me advice, but I haven't, I can't remember it that well because I haven't looked back. It's mm. in it's in my, my emails, mm. all in that. But um, I've had that book on hold for a bit. And then the, re- the reason how I got my uh, book publishing deal, was, um, deal with Zuzil is through Dr. Victoria Flanagan. So I was a research assistant at Macquarie with the English department. Um, Jane Messer was on annual leave at that time. Mm-hmm. And I had to then correspond with Victoria. So the funny thing was we were just casually chatting at our meeting, at our catch-up, and she just asked me, you know, what do you write, Claire? And I happened to tell her about my historical fiction background, and then she just happened to remember that she had an email from a publisher looking for students um, to commission them to write a book. And their thought was, why are we searching for people when we go to the universities and they're teaching students creative writing? So yeah. so we've got all the writers yes, here. You've yeah, got, yeah, you've got all the writers. Very clever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. She passed, um, she forwarded that email on to me and I just took initiative, which is an, another advice I wanted to give to writers is that you need to take initiative and you need to be proactive. And I just got in contact with them and then from there I had to send a portfolio of work and presto, that's how I got my yeah book publishing deal with them. That's amazing. That's a really good yeah. story. In your experience working in publishing, was there were there many manuscripts that came out of the slush pile? Or in my time at yeah, Penguin? in your time at Penguin, yeah, there was um I I was looking so much to find a gem that we're all looking for gems to just you know pass it on to the right person, a publisher, or an editor, because you know what their interests are and what they're looking for, because they all have a list. Um, yeah, they all have their own publishing list of books they're trying to fit into their slot of what they want to publish. Because mm. they really, yeah, they look. We're looking for these gems. So um, my first time though, when I first <laughs> went into the splash pile, is that I picked up. I mentioned this at my with the graduate students, yep. the internships. Um, I mentioned that the first manuscript I picked up was an exercise book that was handwritten by a gentleman who was in his seventies, <laughs> and he had ri- ri- he just had written his whole 
yeah, manuscript handwritten it. And I just thought, oh, my God, what on earth is going on? Don't people read the guidelines? Like, they're lucky. Like, oh, I just could. I just was in complete shock that somebody did that. But that was with the adult fiction department. Yeah. Children's, um, with the children's fiction department for Kids Pitch, you need to send your email through to their Kids Pitch email, and that's how they receive the manuscripts. And you usually send about the first 50 pages. So it's all about, again, reading those guidelines and making sure you adhere to them. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was completely shocked with some of the – you get some poor quality fiction. In the, in the slush bar. Yeah, there's a lot of poor quality fiction. I imagine there's lots of strange stuff. Yeah, <laughs> very strange. Like I read a story about, oh, I shouldn't – oh, just a, a girl who couldn't digest food and then her poos weren't coming out properly, but it was a, a picture book for kids. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> You're thinking, wow, how do you how, – and, and it was poorly written as well. It was more of like a, a reflection – about her own story <laughs> instead of, like, actually getting a picture book written. Yeah. Oh, I was just, yeah, it was completely... <laughs> Did it make you feel better about your own writing? Yeah, it does. <laughs> but then you're kind of like, wow, how are you supposed to get your work through the slush pile and get through all of this crap and get it into yeah. the right hands of an editor or a publisher? So that's why another big advice I keep saying to young writers is that you need to network, you need to attend publishing events mm. and just volunteering your time to go to this event, like the Sydney's Writers' Festival. That's mm. how It's just about networking and meeting people. Mm. So if you're not working in publishing as you were, you just yeah. say go to writers' events. Yeah, go to writers' events and that's how you get your foot in the door. It's about making those contacts and networking. So you've got to go up and talk to people. That's yeah. it. You, you, and, again, as introverts it's a bit hard, but that's what you need to do. You need to put yourself out there because publishers are also looking for somebody who can – publicize their work so the publicity aspect of it and the marketing aspect they want mm. people that can talk about their work mm. so what what advice would you give to kind of young writers in terms of like getting a kind of public profile social media yep yeah a big one social yeah. media so the one thing I did in 2012 was that I started branding myself as a writer so created my own website my own blog and I started just writing things that I love my interests so that's my professional professional blog so I published my my work up there. I use social media then to create a buzz about it, mm-hmm. um, and I've been doing that since 2012. When I went to Greece in 2013, I wrote all these blog posts about my time in Greece because I write about yeah. ancient history. So, yeah, it's about branding yourself, and yeah, that's what I that's what I've been doing. That's what yeah. So, so just branding, yeah. branding's a big one. I have to say, and using websites and social media. Yeah, so people know how to find you and, yeah, yeah, there is a bit of an inbuilt market. Yeah, Yeah. and that's a big thing because what publishers do is they then look at your digital footprint. Mm. So they start seeing what you've done. So they go into your website online they start seeing what you've accomplished and how you've branded yourself and they start thinking, okay, is this somebody that we can pick up and take hold of and launch their career in a way? Mm. Yeah, so you want want a space to kind of show off your achievements. And and your portfolio of work as well. That's one big, big thing as well. You also talked too about doing things like writing for Grapeshot, which is the Macquarie Uni student publication, as well as other kind of little um, university publications and, you know, off-the-ground kind of um, publications. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that did for you? So with um, Grapeshot, um, when you first start at Macquarie, you pick up this magazine, you think, wow, this is amazing. You start reading, I started reading the creative writing session. I thought, well, why can't I get my work published in here? So it was around about in my my first year doing my master's degree and it was my last year I think doing my undergraduate degree that I you know decided I wanted to publish a short story about a rooster (laughs) that was being burned at the stake because um I think I can't remember now but it ate 
it, they thought it was an, um, an, an abomination, that it was diabolical, and it was the, the, the church. So I did, a, I did a unit on the side with um, my creative writing, yeah, with my unit, and I just wrote about this character from an animal's perspective of how absurd it was to be, you know, be you know crucified for being a rooster. Yeah, so that was based on like medieval animal yeah, trials. Medieval t- yeah, yeah, animal trials, and just the the irony of the whole thing. Like, what on earth? It was humorous. So I yeah. I got that published with Grave Show, and that's how I made contacts with that. And then they were looking for copy editors, and um, I think it was just fiction editors and nonfiction editors. So with the different parts of the magazine Mm -hmm. so I thought well why not me it's a good little side job because I was working at Coles at the time to have you know start you know expanding your horizons yeah yeah. so I got an interview and that's how I got my copy editing job and then I thought well I should be publishing something with Grape Shot so I asked if I could create a column called History and Review and that's how I started writing about ancient history but kind of like using it in a fun way for university students so the first one was about university experience and how you know it's tough but at least we're not you know a soldier in battle and we're gonna, you know, yeah. going through that and you know yeah. <laughs> dying or whatever but um yeah I was just trying to use that to just educate people about ancient history so that's what I did with that and I also um, got a poem published with that as well just using that avenue then as well to just get myself out there and that was clever because you kind of set yourself up as a historical yeah kind of fiction person you yeah know? so that's I thought yeah. I could use that as well to launch myself but then um when I was doing my master's degree um I did my manuscript project mm. which is the manuscript that I'd written I've been trying to get published um and I started doing research about migrant literature and yeah multiculturalism as well so I started doing my research and I got my proposal out and that's how I then started my manuscript project I had to write a had to write a 25,000 word manuscript for that project I had Claire Elizabeth Alberts who was my supervisor but um with that research it then opened me up to the Greek Australian community Mm. which is what I said to my partner is that I've got this my historical passion but then I also have this contemporary yeah Greek Australian literature that I'm trying to get so I thought I need to start branding myself as that type of writer as well. So um, I came across our publishing, just sitting there doing research, and I realised that they were a publisher in Melbourne. And it's by a publisher called Helen, who used to be a university lecturer at La Trobe University. Okay. And she's launched um, our publishing to give voice to Greek Australian writers. So I thought, okay. And on her website at the time, it said that you could request for your research to receive a free copy of her books. So I just, you know, took initiative, being proactive again, like I've been saying to people, and I just contacted her. And then from there I've created a beautiful friendship with her and she sent me the books, which was um, fantastic. And then just reading about that, I was like, wow, the migrant fiction is here. There's Mm -hmm. migrant literature out there. I've got the voices of migrants who came here in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But now I'm, you know, a a young Greek-Australian woman trying to work out all what about our voices now is, is there anything being written about as a 20 year old now mm. is there yeah. anything out there yet so I was looking at the migrant fiction um and I even requested you know if there was a poetry anthology that she was going to publish if I could be a part of it and she was actually doing um a father's anthology so it's about you know your experience with a migrant father so I wrote about my dad in the fathers from the edge book mm-hmm. that was published by our publishing and it was just it was called um the man who loves greek culture and it's just about my relationship with my dad my experience and there was other um greek australian writers as well who have given their experience with their migrant fathers 
Yeah, so just like finding a little thread. Yeah, finding a little thread and pursuing that. And then from there, she also gave me advice about getting in contact with the Greek-Australian Cultural League because they do the Antipodes um, anthology or periodical. And um, there's a literary competition. I thought, well, why not? Why can't I try and enter this competition? You know, so I did that and I actually won the competition that Fantastic. year. Congratulations. So, thank you. <laughs> with um with my poem. And it was just about again feeling linguistically alienated and about that displacement of having your cultural identity. So then I did um got that poem published and then ever since then I've been publishing a poem with them every year as a member. So I'm mm-hmm. a member of the Greek Australian Culture League. Yeah and again it's just about educating people. And the great thing is that with the Greek Australian Culture League it's a platform that I've been able to use to help me launch mm. that other aspect of my career. So yeah, and it's yeah. and it's a lovely network to have yeah. behind you. And that's how I yeah did that. Just all the different advice I've received from people, I then take it on board and I think, okay, what can I do? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like being in, being really kind of proactive. Yeah, and being very um, willing to put yourself out there. Yeah, is, is the kind of which is a bit hard, yeah. especially like I know when you're at uni and you've got you're doing a workshop with people. And you're like, oh, my God, people are going to judge me because of my work and <laughs> yeah. what I've written. I remember my first time at uni, you know, going to a writing workshop was a bit scary. I wrote a horrible um, romance <laughs> about a girl, obviously a girl and a guy and a girl, but it was just so poorly written. That was my first ever writing workshop at Macquarie, and it just got blasted. So I was, you know. Were you okay? I was okay. Like, the next day, like, you self-reflect and you're thinking, well, it was pretty shit, so yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bad. But then I then changed the story and adapted it, and that's when I started. You know, you get you start getting more educated about mm. creative writing and the do's and don'ts as yeah. well. What are some of those don'ts? Because we talked a lot about what you should do. Is there yeah. anything that you think people should not do? Absolutely not do. <laughs> oh god, that's a bit of a hard one. Um, the don'ts. That is a very good question. I, was, I had some answers for them. I'm just trying to remember what I was going to say. Um, Maybe don't, don't. Be, don't be too kind of shy, maybe. Yeah, don't be too shy and you need to throw yourself out there. So you do need to be proactive. But another thing, with writers, we all get rejected. Yeah. you got to build a backbone. So instead don't of... take it too personally. Yeah, you, yeah. Don't, you can't take it too personally. The whole writing world is very, very subjective. But if you know what you want to say, say it um, in a good way as well. But um, with rejection, it's about coping with how you deal with the rejection. Mm. Don't start hounding people or writing letters of why wasn't this picked. You've got to remove the emotion from the professionalism as a writer. Mm. So the one thing I would say, if you've sent your work in and it has gotten rejection, it's one that you're really, really looking forward to, you then need to have a 24-hour meltdown mm-hmm. and then move forward and move on. So that's that's a big advice that I have to say. And Jenny Morda gave me that advice when I was doing my master's degree, when I was doing um, writing young, young adult fiction. So, again, I keep taking on board the advice. Yeah, so listen to advice. Yeah, <laughs> listen to advice. Like people know what they're talking about. The other thing um, Dr. Jane Messer also told me um, that all writing is rewriting. So even though you love your manuscript at the moment, you need to kill your darling. Yeah. It's a big thing in the book publishing world. You need to learn how to take a step back and just give it some time mm. and then go back to it with, you know, the writer's pen but as an edit with an editor's pen, having your editor cap on. Yeah. That advice about having a 24-hour meltdown is yep. so good. That's exactly what I was told to do as yes. an academic because, you yes. know, academics are writers too. We're writing mm. just in a different kind of mode. Um, 
every rejection you get. It's a bit of a it's yeah. a hit to your confidence. It's a but, hit, but you give yourself 24 yeah. hours, then you get over yeah. it, send it somewhere else. And again, I'm mentioning just J.K. Rowling. She was yep. rejected exactly. like I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of times. Yep. But if she'd given up, yep, you wouldn't have Harry Potter, and that's then right. I wouldn't be here. That's right. I mean, look at the chain reaction. <laughs> I know that's how everything's just um, come Connect- to be connected. Yeah. Um, you talked about um, editing too, and the kind of you know going back to an early comment, you said that there were three kinds of edits. Yes. Um, there was copy editing, there's structural editing, and then there's proofreading. Um, for those of of the listeners who don't know what the difference is, do you mind yep. just very quickly going through them? So structural editing is when you put the manuscript down or. Yeah, I'll talk about manuscripts. So you put yeah. the manuscript down and it's about um, looking at the whole manuscript as a whole. Mm-hmm. So you're st- you start looking at themes and concepts that you've written about. So your dialogue, how you've written the dialogue, is it cohesive? Is everything flowing? How are the characters? You're looking at the st- So the structural edit for a character is have they changed in the story? Mm-hmm. So the whole point about a, um, a book with fiction is that the character, what they are before the change, what is the change and how are they after the change? So you need to make sure that your character has gone through a character development. So mm-hmm. that's the point of that structural edit, edit as well. You're also looking at different themes. What's the main message of the story? Is it in there? Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got yeah, dialogue, the scenes and sequels. That's another thing as well. So looking at how you've written your, your scenes and it just each chapter and is it cohesive? Mm-hmm. And then going back to the chapter and thinking, okay, is there something that I can solidify is there something that I'm missing from this chapter is there a goal in each chapter that I've achieved mm. to get to the next chapter so that it flows so that's looking at the big apps um, so as, that's like the book as yeah, a kind of as, as a the whole. whole yeah with those big themes as well mm-hmm. and then the copy edit is when you're reading the sentences and your grammar mm. so that's what the copy edit is about so that's that's another edit and then your last edit is your proofreading and that's reading the whole book and just picking up those punctuation marks or that's those spelling mistakes that you've missed mm. while doing the structural edit and the copy edit. And you always miss things. Oh, It doesn't course. matter how many times you've read it. I've um, reread my manuscript from my manuscript um, from the manuscript project that I've done since 2014 and I've read over it so many times. I actually read 220 pages yesterday wow. of just proofreading it and going through stuff and just picking up little things. But there's like, you know, an apostrophe that's been missing. Like, oh, yeah. how on earth did I do that? Or even looking at the, like, at the word it's, it is. Yeah. That apostrophe there, making sure you've got the right it's yeah. in there. So that's, again, with grammar and punctuation. But the one thing um, that I received with really good feedback, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, um, it was weird because I got a – I was getting HDs with my English, English work, but then with my ancient history, it got picked up that I was getting credits. And then this one um, tutor – um, said that my expression was weak, so my grammar. So I thought, okay, why hasn't it been picked up with the English side as well? Yeah. So she suggested that I go see a grammar, a, is it a grammarist? Grammarian? Grammarian. <laughs> so I went and saw, which you always get confused with how to pronounce that. So I went and saw a grammarian at Macquarie yeah. and had a consultation. So I suggested for everybody, if anybody, yeah, I suggest anybody to go see a grammarian at Macquarie. Um, and he just said to me, the problem with your work at the moment he goes, it's not about the fact that you're, you're Greek because they can also pick up like with the language thing, but it's not. He goes, the problem is that you're writing your first draft. You need to put your book aside or your, your work, even like any academic writing that you're doing, any essays, you need to put it aside for 24 hours and then come back to it and then reread the whole thing. Don't submit your first draft mm. as your assessment. So that's why they were picking up on my, my expression because 
I wasn't rereading my work. Such a good lesson, no matter if you're a writer or just a student. A very good lesson. So that's kind of like where the editing aspect of that interest started for me. And I thought, wow, why why didn't I do that? So with proofreading for writers... They also say it's good to proofread it by reading it out loud. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine reading a 400-page book out, out loud? But the good thing about it is that you pick up on dialogue and just spelling mistakes, but even punctuate, punctuation marks. You pick it up because your ear can pick up mm. how you pronounce things and how they sound. And even if there's a comma in the wrong place. Yes, that is the that comma is, is a big yeah, yeah a big deal. A semicolon or a colon, just the comma. Yeah, the pause where it needs to be. Exactly, and that is advice like, I give to all of my yeah, students. You need to read it out loud. Yes, yeah. it doesn't matter if it's a one thousand word essay nah. that you're writing for class, you or need to a, read it out loud, or a four hundred page book that you're writing yep. for, for the world. Yep. Read it out loud. You sound yep. stupid, but yep. nobody cares. No, but it needs to happen. It yeah. needs to happen. Just lock <laughs> yourself in your room. That's it, and read it. Yeah. That's it. So that's another big advice that I picked up from Macquarie again. Yeah. Just from, yeah, diff- different people. I just take people's advice on. Oh, on board. Yeah. yeah. Well, that has been some excellent advice for our Thank listeners. You. Is there anything else that you, you think that you can tell the young writers out there who um, are listening? Just persevere and be resilient and you'll get there. It takes yeah. time, but... As hard workers, you'll get there. Yeah. It just, yeah, it just takes time. Don't take the knocks too personally. Yeah. We all get them. So build that backbone and throw yourself out there. So be proactive, take initiative, and be resilient and persevere. Actually, one of the other people who um, I got in to talk to my, my um, class of interns um, who are going out and doing internships in a variety of businesses, um, she tries to get a thousand, uh, sorry, not a thousand, a hundred rejections per year. Oh my, yeah, that is fantastic. See, that, yeah. is, that is a good motto. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and it's not because she wants rejections. It's yeah. because that, that shows you how much work she's putting out. Yes. There. So mm-hmm. the last thing as well to say, um, when I was at doing my master's degree, Dr. Jane Messer said to me, um, with all of us other students, you need to have a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, which helps you track what you, where, where you've submitted your work to the date, who you sent it to, what the work was. Was it a poem, a short story, Mm. a manuscript? And then if you've heard back from that person, making sure that you know the guidelines, if you should be sending a follow-up email after, you know, three weeks or three months, Mm. make sure you have that spreadsheet and that helps you keep you organised. And then you can start seeing, have on um, as a column, rejected or accepted, yes or no. And you can also count. So I've got a little spreadsheet like that as well. Yeah. But it's a good way. And it's nice too because then you see both. Yeah. Yeah. And you start seeing, yeah, you get a lot of rejections, but it's just part of your writer's story, as I like to say, and the journey that you're on. So, yeah, yeah, no one gets it easy. No, no, no. Unfortunately. No, nope, you have to work hard. Yeah. Thank you so much, Claire. Yeah, that was you. amazing. That was so super helpful. I cannot wait to read about um, some ancient Greeks. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very helpful. If you wanted to read more about Claire's work, where should you go, Claire? Um, you should go to my blog. So you just have to type in my full name, Claire Katakuznas. Do you want to spell that? Yeah, so it's so Claire, so C-L-A-I-R-E, and then Katakuznos, it's 12 letters, so C-A-T-A-C-O-U-Z-I-N-O-S, and I'm on WordPress. But, yeah, you'll be able to find me, hopefully, will be up on the podcast. My name will be on there. Yep. You guys can easily copy and paste it. Yeah, yeah. And it's we a 12 put, letter long yeah. name. <laughs> we will put links to your website yeah. and to all the social media stuff, yeah, Twitter fantastic. and so forth, um, so you can easily find Claire. Thank you so when her much. Book comes out. <laughs> so thanks once again, and we'll see you again in a week. Thank you. Bye.